a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 5, Star Wars, Issue 1, July 1977, cover date. Hello, and welcome back to the Comic Book Time Machine podcast about going back in time to find and read good comics because you know if you have a time machine sure you could go and find out what happened to amelia Earhart, or you could read about machine man in the pages of 2001 a space odyssey or maybe the final episode of logan's run which wasn't meant to be the final episode of logan's run but was or well the topic that I'm most excited about. And the reason I'm actually doing this experiment, Star Wars. Yes, that's right. This this, this, this is the episode where we finally get to talk about that first issue, cover date July 1977, of Star Wars, Marvel Comics adaptation of the 20th Century Fox movie. So I think, I, I really just think we should just jump right in. Um, I'm going to explain what this experiment is for people who are just joining. Basically, what I'm going to be doing from here on out with my solo experiment is I'm going to be reading through Marvel's sci-fi licensed books. And eventually that's going to get us into things like ROM and Micronauts and Star Trek and things like that. But I'm using Star Wars as the linchpin. I'm starting with Star Wars issue one. Last time I did a solo episode, it was um, talking about 2001 by Jack Kirby and the first issue of John Carter, Warlord of Mars and Logan's Run, uh, because those three books, they started before Star Wars, but they ran concurrently with Star Wars when Star Wars began. Well, sort of ran concurrently with Star Wars, as you'll see in one example. Um, and honestly, if it hadn't been for John Carter, I might have considered skipping them all together. But they do fit into the thing here, as I, I think I ended my last time, uh, my last solo episode, talking about the um, the way Star Wars changed science fiction, and talking about how you know 2001: A Space Odyssey, along with Planet of the Apes, kind of changed allowed allowed movies in the genre of sci-fi to be a little more thoughtful and thought provoking and not so much for just the kids. And with um, Star Wars, there was another big paradigm shift. And so what we're looking at here is we're seeing uh, 2001 and Logan's run 2001 being, like I said, the beginning and Logan's run kind of being the end of that new sci-fi era. Um, because Logan's Run came out right before a little movie called Star Wars. So, like I said, though, 
I'd like to get started. I have a lot to talk about with uh, Star Wars, John Carter, Logan's Run 2001, all that kind of thing. So right now, I think we're going to go ahead and jump in. Star Wars issue number one, cover date July 1977. I'm going to throw out a couple dates here, though. Uh, the first date being May 25th, 1977 was a day that changed science fiction, changed cinema, changed fandom, changed the whole idea of franchises, changed, you could even argue it changed pop culture. It definitely altered my my young, young, young life. Um, but the thing is, um, Star Wars actually started changing comics even before that date in May of May 25th, 1977. Cover date, July 77. Uh, the first issue of Star Wars was actually released April 12th, 1977, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Uh, issue number one was the first chapter of the Star Wars adaptation, the first of six chapters they were uh you know remember logan's run started out with four and then turned into five well star wars is going to go ahead and just jump right in and be six with a 30 cent cover price um the issue is a treasure for fans of star wars especially early on and when i say the issue is a treasure i'm not talking about the resale price you know when you so, you know try and sell your collection or something like that if you have that issue it's gonna it, it's gonna get you some money but i'm, I'm talking about it being a treasure to fans back then they there were extra scenes in there deleted scenes now they would show up on a dvd if the uh filmmakers weren't too embarrassed by them but back then there's no way to see this kind of thing now this isn't unusual though because star wars was no different than any other uh adaptation a lot of times the adaptation of a movie into a book or a comic book required a, an early draft of the script. And sometimes the script would change between the time that the people who were doing the adaptation would get it. And when the movie was actually filmed and then released. And so I think specifically of star Trek five, which had some stuff in it that was not in the actual screened movie because uh, they didn't have budget to do the things that they wanted to do. And so they had to actually make some changes. Well, in the comic book, they didn't have time to change it. It was already getting drawn and, and being printed. Uh, the same thing happened with Superman four. I remember that comic book. I really enjoyed the Superman four comic book and it had a cut scene in there with a strange dark haired clone of Superman instead of the blonde haired clone of new you know, Superman named nuclear man. Um, in, in Superman four, the quest for peace comic book. I really, really loved it because it had these extra things in it that weren't in the movie. And <laughs> the comic book's pretty good, by the way, the movie, yeah. Another topic for another day, but the comic book actually wasn't too bad. So the same thing here was happening with Star Wars because they were adapting from a script and things were changing before the movie was finished. And but they, they were actually adapting this before they had ever seen anything on the big screen. Um, they were adapting these things before you know, based on uh, photo references and based on uh, a movie screening that we'll talk about in a moment here. But um before we talk about the, the actual story that we find within the comic, let's we should probably just talk about the story of the comic. So where did it start? Well, the first stop, uh, George Lucas was making Star Wars with uh, 20th Century Fox, and he took some risks and 20th Century Fox was taking some risks risks with George Lucas. So 
story says that George Lucas actually came to Stan Lee and uh, the legend has it. And by legend, I mean Jim Shooter's blog, which I'll link to in our in the show notes for this episode, um, which can be found at, um, at comic book time machine slash Star Wars begins uh, in the show notes, though, you'll find a link to Jim Shooter's story about how he believes that he heard Stan Lee kept George Lucas waiting 45 minutes in reception of his office and then turned them down, uh, turned down their idea of a comic book to help drum up interest for the movie because they wanted to have some issues of the Star Wars comic book come out a couple months before the movie was released. They didn't have a whole bunch of things where they were doing a bunch of publicity and stuff like that for this first Star Wars movie. Uh, and this was going to be one of those few publicity things that they were going to do. So we're in early 1976 and they came back to Marvel, but this time they came through Roy Thomas. Now, Roy Thomas was once editor-in-chief. Um, he is well, well, well-known and well-loved in fan circles as a writer for Marvel Comics in, in the 70s. His work on Conan and The Invaders were, were two of his biggest things back then. At the time, though, that they came to him, he was not editor-in-chief anymore. He was merely a writer and editor um, on staff or freelancing. and um, They they insisted on him uh, doing the Star Wars comic book and they, they wanted him. They came to him and they said they came to him because of Conan, uh, because of what he'd done with Conan and what had he done with Conan? Well, uh, he made Conan an awesome comic book. Uh, he made it one of their biggest books. Um, you know, they they actually had Conan power records. I remember an album that I had. I didn't have the, the record album. I had a CD, but it was Spider-Man rock reflections of a superhero and it had all these pictures of Marvel superheroes doing stuff with uh, different instruments. And one of the pe people that they had in this, <laughs> in the liner notes was Conan. He wasn't a superhero. I don't know if they had to like go through a time warp to bring him, you know, into the future so that he could uh, play instruments in Spider-Man's band as they were doing the Spider-Man rock reflections of a superhero. Um, by the way, I recommend the album Spider-Man rock reflections of a superhero is it is cheese. It is kitschy at its best. Um, you know, there's, well, I'm not going to get into all these things, but it's, it's basically just rock songs about Spider-Man stories. And at one point, Dr. Octopus is he has his own song, his own rock anthem. And in it, he's putting down all the other superheroes and stuff. And one of the superheroes he puts down is he says, Conan, you're going to be no man when I'm done with you, that kind of thing. So anyway, Conan was huge. It was big and it was making lots of money for Marvel. And so uh, the way Roy Thomas says it uh, in his he did an article about the beginnings of Star Wars comic books. And the way he says that it worked was they the success and quality of the Conan titles. That's, this is a direct quote. The success and quality of the Conan titles were the double reasons that they approached him. Now, Stanley had said no. And Roy Thomas wasn't interested because he had dealt with studio interference on other projects. Uh, Planet of the Apes being one of them. And uh, with Conan, he was okay because Robert E. Howard was dead and couldn't complain because they did a lot of original material about Conan. But um, they started telling him the story of Star Wars and he still wasn't interested because they were just using, there's all these words coming at him, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Chewbacca and all those kind of things just wasn't interested. And 
then they started showing him the concept art. And so in this article that I was reading that he had written, he's explaining the concept art and how it just grabbed him. And that's where he knew this was going to be cool. This was going to go back to the space opera stuff of the comic books that he loved from, you know, the fifties and that kind of thing. You know, this is, they couldn't do that kind of thing on the screen. They couldn't do it well. And so you, this is a, a real change for him. He, he's looking at this and saying, yes, I mean, I like this. I could enjoy this. I want to do this. So they had the writer that they wanted. Roy was in as the writer. And the artist they wanted was Howard Chaikin, who is, you know, one of the greats. When you look at comic book artists, uh, he's he's right up there. He's one of the greats. And they wanted him because of some work he had done on uh, a sci-fi series for DC called Iron Wolf. And so he, they were interested in him and Howard ended up being interested in the book. Uh, all they needed was Stan Lee. So step three, step one was George Lucas going to Stan Lee. Step two was a man named Charlie Lippincott uh, going to uh, Roy Thomas. And step three was Roy Thomas going to Stan Lee. And Stan said yes. And the reasons are dubious. Um, Roy Thomas doesn't really know. And Stan Lee said it was something about when they first came to him, they didn't mention that Alec Guinness was going to be in it. But when Roy Thomas mentioned that Alec Guinness was going to be in it, that that was what sold them on it. But Roy Thomas doesn't really believe that. So he wanted to do it in six issues after he saw the screenplays and started getting into the artwork and everything like that. And they were pushing for fewer. Marvel was pushing for fewer because Marvel was looking at this as saying, you know, this is who knows what the star Wars is? No one knows what star Wars is. It's got a really lame name. It's why would we you know, want star Wars? And so they were suggesting maybe two issues or maybe even doing it in one 20th century Fox. Their biggest thing was they wanted two issues out before the movie came out. And so if they had done the adaptation in two issues, they, it would be done. They wouldn't have to worry about anything more. And, and their obligation would be, would be finished if the movie was a flop. But uh, Roy, he strong armed them. He wanted six issues and he was their man. And so he got six issues. So, like I said, they got to look at concept art. Uh, Roy Thomas actually got to go into Industrial Light and Magic and actually see the models of the, the, the vehicles and see, you know, the, the trench run for the Death Star and all those those kind of things. You got to see these. He called them model kits. He thought they looked like model kits. He also got to see the legendary screening. And this is a cut of star Wars that didn't have all the special effects you had. uh, This is the cut of star Wars that had actually, instead of um, tie fighters and X-wing fighters, they, they cut in world war two footage. So like the scene where they're escaping the death star and and Han and Luke are both, you know, shooting the guns from the millennium Falcon. And and as they're shooting, they show Luke, you know, firing his weapon at the various tie fighters that were coming at them. And instead of a tie fighter, they cut to a World War II plane getting getting shot. And and so these were <clears throat> this was something that he got to sit in on. And, and he didn't know until later that he was actually sitting in on something really important in his article. He actually says he didn't realize that this was the legendary screening um, that, you know, fans talk about uh, until 2006 when someone was interviewing <laughs> and asked him about it. Um, one thing, though, that he did notice is that there were things that were different that they had cut out that had been in the screenplay that he was using. And so 
artwork was already finished and he's the way he says it when he went and saw the screening they were actually sending these books to the printing press and with with these books the artwork is is done and he's sitting there watching this movie and seeing oh all the stuff in Tatooine uh from issue one is gone the screen crawl the famous beginning it's different um from Roy Thomas got an early draft and then he noticed oh the screen crawl at the beginning they changed it but but honestly, it's OK. Uh, I don't mind those differences because what we're really getting here is a nice look behind the curtain in, in the filmmaking process and how editing works, even even after they've already filmed things. So it, it makes it a, an interesting comparison to see, you know, this is what it was before and this is what it became after. And sometimes it's for the best and sometimes not so much. The issue itself, though, turning back to this issue one, it's sold really well. Now, we'll talk about issue two next time, which also came out before the movie. But issue one sold incredibly well. They were very pleased with how well it sold. So long as the, the movie didn't bomb, they would do very well with this with this uh, investment because they didn't really have to pay much. The, I think that the uh, royalties to George Lucas on this adaptation the royalties were close to zero they were not paying very much to actually produce these books and usually as you'll note when we talk about Edgar Rice Burroughs later on there is money that gets paid to the people who own the license and people who own the copyright in this case for Star Wars because they wanted to use these comic books as something that would help drum up interest in the movie they were more willing to let the license go for a for a sweet little song. So the issue did well. Part of the reason the issue did well was because of Howard Chaikin's art. There's no doubt about that because it, it does have a vibrancy and an, an energy. And of course, they weren't able to at that point when issue one first came out, they weren't anyway, they weren't able to compare it to the movie. Now, one other thing is this comic issue number one of Star Wars is said to be the most one of the most reprinted comics ever. And it's actually you know sold millions of copies if you include all of the, the collections and stuff that has been reprinted in. Another reason why it sold well was because there was fan buzz. Now, there wasn't Internet back then, obviously, but there were fan circles. There were comic book fan circles comic conventions were actually about comic books and one of the things that they did was they took star wars in july 1976 to san diego comic-con and this is one of if one of if not the first movie presentation at san diego comic-con and roy thomas regrets now that they started it but at san diego comic-con july 1976 charlie lippincott who i mentioned before roy thomas and howard chaikin did a panel presenting at least the uh, a poster artwork that Howard Chaikin had drawn for Star Wars. They had T-shirts there. They were selling the posters for a dollar. They were selling the T-shirts, I believe. These things, if you bought that poster for a dollar and still have it in good condition, you made a great investment back in 1976. The response to that presentation was very, very enthusiastic and very, very positive. And... Roy Thomas credits that with a lot of the success for that first issue of Star Wars. Because remember, they didn't have a big, big push behind the Star Wars movie. So they didn't have a big, big push behind the Star Wars comic book. In fact, the big, big 
the big push behind the Star Wars movie was the Star Wars comic book. So they weren't riding on the popularity of the movie yet. The movie was not popular yet. That was still a couple months out. So taking a look at this issue from a critical standpoint, it's hard to be critical of it because, like I said, Howard Chaikin, he had seen stills. He had seen pictures. He had seen models, but he had not seen things in action when they were actually drawing and creating this comic. This issue was already going to print by the time they saw that movie presentation in July of 1976. So if you're looking through like I'm doing right now, you're seeing on the first page with that screen crawl that's different, you see a death, uh, not a star, you see a star destroyer. It does not look like the star destroyer. It's triangle. There is that triangleness to it, but it, it, it just is not on model. And that's one thing that as I'm looking through here, I'm just noticing there are a lot of things that just aren't on model. One thing that really is on model is C-3PO, interestingly. The problem is you can tell that they've never seen C-3PO moving because you can see he is much more flexible, much more active. He's able to hop around. He's able to jump slightly. I mean, he's not doing you know aerobics or anything like that, but there are a couple panels of C-3PO where he is moving in ways that just don't feel right to me. Now, they don't feel right to me because I've spent decades with this movie, decades with this character. Howard Chaikin had seen photographs of it and read a screenplay. So it's understandable. Uh, some of the character likenesses don't work. Uh, I don't feel like I'm looking at Mark Hamill as I look at this, but I do feel like I'm looking at Luke Skywalker, and I don't know if I'm more forgiving with that kind of thing because I've also spent time reading Star Wars comic books. The one thing I do want to mention here is this is actually after this trip back in time on the comic book time machine is the first time I actually ever read this issue of Star Wars. I never felt the desire to go and seek it out because honestly, I have already I already know the story of Star Wars. I know that movie's story very, very, very well. Also on model are the Sand People, which is where this issue ends, where Luke is being attacked by the Sand People. Uh, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Darth Vader are really the only primary cast who appear in this issue. Yeah, there's Stormtroopers and Jawas and Sand People and uh, um, Biggs, Biggs Darklighter, uh, which we'll talk about him in a, in a moment here. But it's interesting because it does not get very far or doesn't feel like it gets very far because we don't even get to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, we do end at a good cliffhanger. As someone who has written adaptations before, especially George Martin's Hedge Knight, where I had six issues to do his his uh, novella, I had to do the first two books looking for at least what I would call an emotional cliffhanger to bring people back in the next issue. That is not easy. And so with this, you have it ends with a sand person raising his uh, his staff to strike Luke Skywalker, and it says, next issue, on to Alderaan. It ends in a very dramatic, dramatic place. Now, there's only 16 pages of story, so it does feel kind of short. And some things are glossed over. So it's interesting because you do get these deleted scenes from Tatooine that really give us some of the quiet moments of Luke Skywalker's life before before his his aunt and uncle get killed, and he has, you know, he has to go with, with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, this... The, we get those quiet moments, but then we also get a lot of 
quick moments that you just are thinking, well, wait a minute, did that even happen? Uh, the famous scene of Princess Leia recording the message for Obi-Wan Kenobi, where you hear her, you know, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. And then she looks around and she inserts the disc into R2-D2. It's just one panel. And so, but again, I, I've done adaptations of, of various stories for, for different people. And that's hard. It, it's hard to figure out how do you make, how do you pace this? How do you make it work? Uh, one problem that you, you have happening here is now when you're going from a novel to a, a comic book, it's especially bad, but when you're going from a screenplay and it hasn't been edited yet to see how well it's paced for the screen, they haven't had a chance to sit down and make sure the story was going to move, 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 you know, faster, more, more intense. They, they don't know how it's going to play yet. So they have a screenplay that has some quiet scenes and it's, it's nice. I, I like that. I like that a lot that they, they get to have those moments in there. Uh, one more thing I'll say about these moments, though, is that, uh, first of all, these moments being in the issue makes that a significant portion of the 16 pages. So the focus on this chapter of this book is on Luke Skywalker, squarely on Luke Skywalker. Clearly, Luke Skywalker is the main character of the Star Wars comic book that we're going to be reading because he's the only heroic character that we get in this entire issue. Along with that, you have those deleted scenes of Luke talking to his friend, Biggs. Biggs is going to go off, and we do meet Biggs in the end of the Star Wars movie where they're going to attack the Death Star. We meet him. Luke Skywalker says things that make you think that he might know him, but in the movie, the way it's cut, we never find out you know, how the relationship works. Biggs is going to leave, and, and so we get the scene, and we get some scenes of Luke talking to his, his buddies trying to tell them about how we saw a battle or something like that up in the up in space. It's very interesting to me because the, that those scenes, they are in the Star Wars storybook. Like I said, the, the, I mentioned seeing photos and pictures of things that, that weren't in the movie. That scene of Luke talking to Biggs, I remember vividly seeing that. And I remember it vividly because it wasn't in the movie. It was in the storybook that I had, though. It was on the record. It was in the radio adaptation. It was in the novel. It's here in the comic book. You know the only place that these scenes aren't? The special editions of the movies. Like here, when I heard that he was doing special editions and adding in special effects and some deleted scenes, and we're going to get the scene where Han is talking to Jabba the Hutt. And, oh, great, great, great. I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that we're going to get to see these, these quiet scenes of Luke's life before he leaves Tatooine. Do we get them in the special editions? No, we get everything else. Many things we weren't even asking for in the special editions, but we don't get Luke Skywalker talking to his buddy. That's what I wanted. That's the only thing I wanted. To quote my friend Daniel, I don't ask for much. It's the only thing I'm asking for. That and a warm blanket. Finally, I mentioned the, the coffee cup, and I, I'm very, very excited to talk about the coffee cup. <laughs> when I was first starting this podcast and I was talking to people about the Star Wars comic book adaptation, I had a couple different people, including my friend Daniel Butcher, who you might know from a little podcast called Welcome to Level 7, a blog called Between Disney, and another little podcast called Comic Book Time Machine. Um, <laughs> they brought up a scene in the comic where 
I'm just gonna have to explain it to you. It's the scene in the Death Star boardroom where all of the Imperial officers are sitting around that that table. They're talking about things. Tarkin has just announced that the Emperor has dissolved the Senate. And Vader is talking to some of the Imperial officers about the Death Star. And he, as he's talking to them, casually uses the Force to bring a cup of steaming liquid, possibly coffee, maybe maybe hot cocoa. Maybe he's a tea type of person. I, I like to imagine he's, he's getting a nice cup of hot chocolate. The cup, it looks like a styrofoam cup. It's white. There's steam coming up. And it goes and floats into his hand just before he force chokes that one guy for his lack of faith, which Darth Vader finds disturbing. Uh, one person I talked to thought it might have even been a mistake. Possibly the inker was inking the page and got to that point where Darth Vader's hand is out. And it looks like, you know, he's strangling the guy from afar. And so his hand looks like it's supposed to be holding something. And the anchor maybe thought that Howard Chaykin forgot to put a cup in his hand. And so, well, how am I going to get a cup into his hand? I know I'll just make it float to him. Or what, what's the deal here? Well, let me tell you what the deal is. I have a book and this is one of my favorite star Wars books. I never really got into the star Wars expanded universe. I read a couple of the novels, but they just didn't draw me in the way Star Trek Expanded Universe did. And I, I don't know exactly what the difference was between Star Wars novels and Star Trek novels. But I have a book called Star Wars The Annotated Screenplays. And this book has the three screenplays for Star Wars, A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And there's tons and tons and tons and tons of notes. One thing it does is it does a parallel screenplay where uh, when it gets to a point that was changed for the special edition, there would be... Um, You'd see the original and the special edition side by side. And then there's lots of notes and and quotes from different people, including George Lucas, about changes to the screenplay from the earliest drafts to the shooting scripts. Very interesting things. Very interesting book. Uh, it's Laurent Borzero. I'll put a link in the show notes to the book. And he actually explains what is happening here. It's very, very interesting. I don't even... Well, let's just go ahead. The scene in the conference room of the Death Star that introduces Grand Moff Tarkin, Commander Tag, and Admiral Modi first appeared in the fourth draft. The exchange between Modi... Modi, I don't know. And Vader is different from the scene in the film. During the meeting, Vader stirs slightly... And a metal cup mysteriously floats into his hands. Vader tries to strangle Mahdi without touching him. And after he releases him, he crumples the metal cup with the force. So there it is. It was actually going to be in the movie. It did not end up in the movie, but it was going to be in the movie. And that's from page 39 of Star Wars, the annotated screenplays. Like I said, it's a great book. I love this resource. Again, giving you a peek behind the curtain that you really can't get in any other places. So the issue, issue number one, was it worth going back in time to find it? Yes, it was worth going back in time to read issue number one of star Wars. And I'm even more excited to continue. I'm a little mm, disappointed that I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to wait five more issues before I get into new material. <laughs> I'm going to be reading, uh, their adaptation of existing material that I'm very, very familiar with already. But this, this comic book is the reason for this experiment in time. Tons and tons of licensing 
opportunities came to Marvel because of what Roy Thomas did here with Star Wars. People wanted to replicate the success that Star Wars had. And part of that success was the Star Wars comic book. And obviously it wasn't going to be duplicated exactly with what happened with Star Wars. Uh, You'll see another success in Transformers and G.I. Joe, but Transformers and G.I. Joe are two titles I'm not going to get into. They are possibly two of the most important other licenses. Star Wars, G.I. Joe, and Transformers are kind of the trifecta. I'm not going to get into those. I'm going to stick with the other stuff. Transformers and G.I. Joe both went well beyond Star Wars. When Star Wars issue 107 came along, final issue, Transformers and G.I. Joe continued going, and I'm stopping with the end of Star Wars. I'm not going to go beyond that when with with this particular experiment. This is also the beginning of the Star Wars expanded universe, although not really until issue seven of the series do we start expanding the Star Wars universe. But this is this is the first beginning where we're going to see other people add other things to the Star Wars universe. Some of this obviously is not canon. In fact, I, I, I think that as far as expanded universe canon went before the big announcement that the new movies were going to go off, you know, so episode seven is not going to hold to the, the expanded universe novels and and video games and everything that have come out since, (laughs) since episode, well, since return of the Jedi. So that the movies are their own things and the expanded universe novels are, are not part of that. And I, I believe that's the star Wars comic books weren't, automatically part of the canon it doesn't matter to me i'm excited to read through these star wars comics because they are their own canon issue one through issue 107 plus the the annuals they are their own thing and i'm really excited about diving into this and because i didn't really get into the novels i don't really care that episode seven has is not going to get into whatever happened with luke and han and and leia even though i heard there were some really interesting things that went on with them so it was worth going back in time, worth, well worth the 30 cents I didn't pay when I went back in time in my imaginary time machine. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, what Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Logan's Run, number seven. <laughs>